Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name my is... Name. Does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Karen Seganak is a biologist out of North Dakota. She is a hunter, she is a conservationist, she is a biologist. She's actually a field biologist for an environmental consulting company. I reached out to Karen because I wanted her perspectives on habitat, on conservation, and on wildlife, not just here in North America, but in Africa, since she recently went to Tanzania and really experienced the reason for why hunting is so promoted as a wildlife conservation tool there. I think you'll agree by the end of the podcast that Karen is a very passionate wildlife conservationist and also a very thoughtful wildlife conservationist. And like we always say, we want you to think. We want you to think more. And I know this podcast will make you do it. Karen Seganak, North Dakota, right? Correct. Snow yet? Not yet. We're unseasonably warm in the 80s right now. No way. Come on. It's crazy for October. October. Exactly. In the 80s. It's the, it's in the 90s down. No, I actually think it's in the 80s down here in Mississippi. 
Yeah, I don't know what it portends, but <laughs> we'll see. It suggests that Mississippi and North Dakota are about the same in terms of weather right now. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, I'm glad that we reconnected. Um, round two, how are you feeling? Good. Tired. I've been working on painting my house, but I'm, I'm good otherwise. You have recently come back from an epic backcountry horseback trip. Yes, yes, deep in the heart of Yellowstone in the thoroughfare region. Um, fantastic trip. It's my second time doing this. Um, undoubtedly one of North America's most remarkable wilderness experiences. How far do you think, apart from the party that you were with, how far do you think you were from another human? Um, there are some backpackers and other horse groups that utilize that trail system. Um, but it is the, the least utilized in the whole park. Like each year, less than 100 people get back there. It's highly permitted, um, and highly regulated as far as who can reserve campsites and such. Um, as far as how far we were away from, let's say like the road system, um, yeah. I think at your furthest point, um, you're probably somewhere up to like 60 to 80 miles from any roads in any direction. Um, it, awesome. it's definitely, you know, as far as the contiguous um, United States goes, it's definitely the most remote area. That's amazing. Yeah. And that's almost, that's the reason why, you know, Africa is so so the way that it is in some parts some parts of australia too australia just is there's some crazy remote areas still left in this world there is there is but you know i think too um in some ways it's misleading at times too you know um like you mentioned africa um mm. it's easy to think when you go to africa especially if you take a charter flight into somewhere that you're hundreds of miles away from other people and you're probably not, you know, um, there are lots of settlements and villages and towns and things, you know, and, and, and the same is true. Like where I was just at the greater Yellowstone ecosystem is one of the most explosive human population growth areas in the, the United States, you know? Um, so wilderness is a, um, it's an interesting concept because um, the scales can be quite different and quite misleading, you know. So you talked about human explosions, and, and, and you've probably seen this in terms of engagement on social media, yada, yada, yada. yada. So let me, let me ask a very pointed question. We typically get this, this rhetoric when it comes to hunting, get rid of the humans. You've seen it. Uh -huh. What is the future in your mind of wildlife conservation, given the burgeoning populations of humans around the world? It's a very interesting puzzle. Um, there's only so much we can do to encourage humans to control their own population growth. You know, for Did you see that today, talking about that? Did you see the Republican? No, 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 no. I would say Republican as a representative, the representative out of Pennsylvania, Rab, no. suggesting sterilization after three kids and after if you're greater, older than 40. Wow. No, I hadn't seen that. Wow. 
I mean, it's, you know, like it, there's so many religious and cultural and, you know, lifestyle and community um, aspects to why people have children and why they have as many children as they wish to have. Um, and yes, that we hear that all the time about people are the problem. But in my mind, people are also the solution. You know, mm -hmm. that's important that we think about that because when you talk about it in a wildlife conservation context, um, so much of the time people want to focus on sustainability of programs, just looking at the wildlife aspect of it, okay? They want to argue back and forth, is, is hunting sustainable? Is photographics tourism sustainable? What really needs to be focused on is, are all the activities going on outside those protected areas sustainable? You know, is agriculture, we have to have agriculture, we have to have livestock, we have to have development of housing, um, all right. these things that, you know, humans need. Um, we need to know that that's sustainable because it, at the current rate, it's not, you know, resources are being wasted. They're not being um, properly utilized. Sprawl is occurring. All this stuff takes up habitat. Um, I I recently said to a person who said to me, you know, the, the problem is people. The problem is just people reproducing all the time. Yes, it's problematic. Yes, you know, we should try to foster foster the idea that, you know, limit the size of your families. But um, a few people, it's not just sheer numbers of people, a few people can have ir irreparable effects on areas, right? Whereas mm -hmm. lots of people, if they embrace the right um, land utilization, can have positive effects as well, or less, less um, detrimental effects. The, um, before we go any further, because uh, I just said your name, never introduced you, <laughs> none of that. Uh, so to give people some context so that they, when they hear you speak and, 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 and eloquently discuss wildlife conservation and biology and whatnot, give us a little bit of an introduction of who you are and your background. Okay. Um, my name is Karen Sedgenak, and um, I live in North Dakota. I'm a wildlife biologist. I've been doing that as my profession and my passion for 30 years and counting now. Um, my work as a biologist has always been in the field. That was my goal when I initially got into it is that, you know, I was in it because I love the outdoors. I love nature and I wanted to be in it. Um, I have worked in that capacity, everything ranging from sheer academic studies, you know, where we are answering just a straight biological question, um, on to working for various groups like, or in conjunction with various groups like Ducks Unlimited, National Hunt Turkey Federation, mm -hmm. etc. Um, you know, helping out on graduate projects or helping out on projects where they were perhaps um, investigating a habitat issue. Um, and currently I work in private environmental consulting um, where I am basically a field biologist who goes out um, pre and post construction different projects um, and tells people, you know, tells the developers what is there. Um, if you put in whatever project you're proposing, what impacts might you have? Right. Um, what are concerns, you know, from a, a nature and wildlife perspective with you doing whatever your proposed project is? 
And then if these projects get built, um, you know, monitoring the effects afterwards. Um, right. So that's, that's currently what I do. Um, I like to think that my diverse background in, in those different capacities gives me a, a good perspective to look at these conservation issues in depth. You know, um, it's not all about academics. It's not all about just what different special interest groups want. And it's not all about business either. It's about land usage. It's about what can we do with the land that will or will not support wildlife. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, you know, just in a, in a personal sense, um, if it involves wildlife, I'm probably involved with it. Um, I'm a nature photographer. I write about um, nature and conservation issues. I'm a hunter. I'm an angler. I'm a hiker. I like to go do the horse uh, backcountry trips, the pack trips. Um, like I say, if it involves wildlife, pretty, chances are pretty good. I, I want to be involved in it too. Cool. <laughs> and, and along the way too, um, I've gotten very active on social media, um, for better or for worse sometimes, of course, as we all know how that goes. <laughs> but, um, you know, the, it's very frustrating from my various perspectives that many people on social media want to discuss these issues and they have pretty much little to no experience or firsthand knowledge to be able to, you know, saliently discuss these things um it's Mm. great that they have interest you know because the first step to keeping anything right is people are interested in it um but you have to go beyond the interest stage and you have to learn the basics um to be able to discuss things intelligently um you have to get some experience in it you have to look at things from a pragmatic realistic perspective um and so I, i i got very active you know at first. What if those people can't get the experience though, Karen? Like well, what that, is the next true. best thing from yeah. our perspective engaging them if they can't get the experience? That's true because actually a lot of the people who lack the experience probably live in an environment where they can't, you know, exactly. maybe they live in a highly urban environment where they just are not able to go to these places. Um, I think the best thing they can do is open their minds a bit and discuss these issues with people who do have the experience. Um, I see a lot of dismissal of of folks in that Mm. regards, right? Um, People want to think, well, I read it on the internet or, you know, so-and-so in the media has said this or that about a subject. Um, Yes, you should be reading all these things and you should be trying to digest all these things. But please do not ever discredit the folks who have the firsthand experience in it, um, even if their viewpoint is different than yours, because it's probably going to be different than yours. You know, if you've never we were talking about the wilderness. Right. Right. One thing that I often talk with with guests who are on these trips, because these are these are guided trips. Right. Where I'm a guide, a wrangler. um, and often the guests are people who have come from a place where they just can't even imagine wilderness on that scale, right? They, they live in, a, in an urban area and we'll get way out there and I will say to them, how do you explain this place to somebody who has never left the pavement, mm-hmm. you know? And universally the response is, I'm really not sure, <laughs> you know, it's, right. it's like a completely foreign world to try to explain to somebody. So let's take that example. And I really like it. And let's take it to Tanzania, where you went. 
And Africa is this enigma, right? When you talk about the wilderness in America being this enigma, Africa is, you know, beyond that. It's, it's, it's to itself. And, you know, people talk about all these different things in Africa and, you know, what hunting means and sustainable wildlife conservation and the impact of people and the impact to people and to economies. And, and you went there. So how do we describe that? How do you show, how do we, you know, how do we show the difference between a place where there is hunting and a place that there is no hunting and, and essentially capture the fact that there is actually more wildlife, better habitat, better ecosystem services, all the things that me and you, you know, do on a daily basis in the place that hunting occurs versus when there is no hunting. I think the absolute first step that people have to take in that journey is to realize that Africa is a big continent. Um, the many different countries have many different models. They have many different challenges. Um, and I think people have to throw out the out of Africa concept, which is a term I use a lot. Um, it's very easy to envision Africa as paradise, right? You've seen the it's movie. romantic getaway. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, you've seen the beautifully filmed documentaries where, oh, it looks like you just step out of your tent and there's wildlife everywhere, you know, and, um, and, Lion and families and leopard families interacting like yeah, humans. Yeah, <laughs> and, and, and you know, yes, there are moments like that, right? But in as a whole, no. Um, you know, it's a continent with many problems. Um, and the real Africa is quite different from the out-of-Africa, romanticized Africa. And unfortunately, even people who travel there, both hunters and photo safari tourists, only see that part, right? Mm -hmm. They land in an airport and they see the urban part of Africa, which is, you know, ur ur urbanity worldwide is collections of people, right? It's, you know, right. no great shocker when you land in a city, okay? But then you get whisked off to wherever you're going, whether it's a national park to photograph or you're going to a hunting concession, which is generally pretty much wilderness, okay? Um, and then you get whisked back to the airport and you go home. Great. You have a snapshot of a portion of Africa. Um, much of the stuff in between, if you were to drive hours from the airport to the hunting concession or drive hours to the national park, you will see the realities of Africa. You mm -hmm. will see lands that have become desertified because they were not properly utilized and now they're drought stricken and now nothing, it's very difficult to grow anything and to eke out a living there. You will see areas that have been overgrazed where the cattle are thin and thickly looking and, and chickens are barely making a living. And, mm -hmm. and people are, are very badly affected by that all. Um, right. You know, you, you will see the real Africa and, and it's important that you realize the real Africa versus the romanticized Africa. Um, and I think it's very important for people to realize, too, that we here in North America, Europe, um, areas where our employment levels and our uh, relative lack of poverty um, and the ability that, uh, that we have to own land, things like that, um, 
we can afford the luxury of conservation, right? We can afford the luxury of viewing wildlife just intrinsically for itself. Now, we also utilize wildlife because we have to um, and because we want to, um, but we can afford it as a luxury too, right? right. And, and, right. and we, you know, like, like we will say, oh, I love looking at these birds. You know, I love to watch birds or I love to see these deer walking in my yard or whatever, okay? It's very important to realize that probably the vast majority of Africans do not share that view with us. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. to them, animals are very much a, a resource to be utilized, whether they're domestic animals or wildlife. And if they're Correct. not a resource that can be utilized to their advantage, then they quite possibly are a pest. They're quite possibly a threat to their own lives, um, or they might be a competitor um, for resources, or they might be a vector for disease transmission to to either the, the humans or their domestic livestock. You know, mm -hmm. um, I think that's super important to realize because it's easy for us to think, okay, you know, I was just in Yellowstone National Park. Okay, what North American does not to some extent, value Yellowstone National Park, even if they've never been there, right? Right. In Africa, there's probably a whole lot of Africans who really do not value the Serengeti National Park, <laughs> mm -hmm. right? Um, it's an interesting dilemma. This You bring up a, an interesting point, and I've seen a couple of articles lately that talked about conservation being for rich people. And, and really, the context of those articles was the Jeff Bezos of the world, the Bill Gates of the world investing you know, a hundred million into Africa parks, you know, X, Y, Z. But, but what there's there's something that you've just struck on there, which is something that I, I haven't really given much thought to, which is the idea that conservation is for well-to-do societies, and that it's a privilege in those well-to-do societies to be able to set aside land for some sort of use, whether it's recreation, whether it's hunting, whether it's whatever you want to do on that place. Because if, if a society is at that level in which they can go do those things, they must be pretty well off because they've moved out of that echelon of basic needs of resources from the land itself. Does that make sense? It does. Um, but to clarify that, I, I don't want people to think that conservation is only for the the privileged, you know, that have reached that level, right? Because honestly, conservation... No, no, no. And I wasn't... I wasn't I, yes, there was some privilege title, but more country status, right? right? Yeah, yeah. But, you know, like... You know, when you when you asked me about the population question, too, and I said, you know, really what we need to focus on is the sustainability of the usage of the lands that are not mm -hmm. protected lands. OK, um, we all as humans need conservation. Um, you know, people speak about it as if it's just related to wildlife and nature, but it's related to all the resources we use. Um, a very excellent example here in North Dakota alone is this year. You know, we are an ecosystem and a climate that we experience drought cycles. OK, um, we haven't had a severe drought for several years now until now. And now we've had extreme drought conditions throughout much of the state. Now, they've been relieved a bit because of timely rains. Um, but going into spring this year, where we are normally flooded, 
we were bone dry, um, you know, tragically dry, mind you. And um, it really struck home to me that conservation is something that you enact or you really get concerned about when you realize that you may not have what you need to get through the year or the summer or the week or whatever, okay? Right. Um, now, one big problem with that in Africa is that many Africans do not have that mindset. It's a day-to-day -day lifestyle. Right. And that's not a judgment call on my behalf. That is just the reality. You know, it's not, am I going to need this next spring? It's, do I need this tomorrow? Mm -hmm. That's a that's a big difference from us, right? Um, but, you know, to, to go further with what you were saying, um, I get a little uncomfortable when these ideas come out where, like, Jeff Bezos and people with lots of money should be the ones taking over conservation. I think that's a big mistake. I think people like that, if they want to be philanthropic and they definitely want to contribute to conservation, fantastic, because conservation is expensive, <laughs> especially if mm -hmm. you're going to set stuff aside and say nobody can use this. It's really expensive. Right. If you're going to allow people to utilize at least some portion of it, then more it so the average itself. citizen can partake, right? Yeah. Uh, but I think the other real hazard to all that is I think conservation works best when humans are actually involved in it, when they have a tie to that land, right? If some billionaire buys my own land, let's say, and he he or she just decides that, well, nobody's going to go there, even you, even though it was your home, and but I'm just going to take care of it. I've totally lost my connection to my land. Mm -hmm. um, why should I care? that the migratory raptors have trees to, to roost in anymore? Why should I care that the deer have winter cover? Um, you know, I think we need connections to the land, but they need to be sustainable collection connections, sorry. So what does that look like? What does a sustainable connection look like? It, it varies a lot, I guess, depending upon, you know, where you're talking about. Like, you know, you mentioned I went to Tanzania. The reason I went yeah. to Tanzania is initially i had only been to south africa and i had made several trips to south africa so i learned a lot about their wildlife conservation model um super successful model but they're allowed to own land there you know and because they're allowed to own land they can put up the high fences they can control who comes and goes um they can you know actively manage the habitat on their land they can actively manage the game numbers they're allowed to sell the game meat you know that's so unique to south africa super successful i wanted to see other places and i you know i i wanted people on social media especially these hunting anti-hunting debates they talk a lot about remote hunting concessions in this abstract sense most people have never even been to one unless you've actually hunted there or you work there um and they talk about these things as if well, let's just get rid of the hunting and we can turn it into a photo safari place or right. you know, someone will just or we'll just find one of these super rich people to just pay for it and leave it be. OK, so I wanted to see that. Is that real? I mean, I'm a photographer mm. as well as a hunter. I wanted to go to a place like this and look around and say, would I come here as a photo tourist? Um, would it work if somebody just wanted to show up and pay for it? You know? 
Um, and I think there's some very real issues there. You know, these these places are many of these places that they're government controlled, um, and and the government has set them aside as wildlife habitat to be utilized for hunting, um, so that they can remain wildlife habitat. Now, the areas I went to in Tanzania, they are Miombo forest. Um, the Miombo forest is an amazing ecosystem that can provide humans with lots of products too. Um, you know, it's important that when people talk about Africa, they, they also don't realize this as well. The vast majority of Africans still live off the land um, right. and they lack utilities as well. So they are, they are not plugging or turning the light switch on every night. Mm -hmm. They're burning charcoal to cook with. Um, they're burning, uh, fuel wood just to make a fire for heat or light mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're cutting timber to mill their own furniture or tools or whatever. Um, they're growing their own crops. They're raising their own animals. It's not the lifestyle that we have. Mm -hmm. Now, these Miombo forests, you know, there's the best work that's been done on them as far as sustainability and as far as how can humans manage them for their own benefit, as well as wildlife benefit, has been done in, in Zambia. Um, but there's still this huge lack of studies and management plans and things like that. And it's horribly tragic because what's happening is the areas around these hunting blocks are being used unsustainably with no or little regulation. And, you know, you're just you mentioned the, the, the numbers, the burgeoning numbers of people. Okay. Here's one thing that's really kind of mind blowing to me is that the anti hunters and the animal rights activists, whenever they want to discuss or debate hunting with us, that one of the first things they say is, well, you, sh you, sh the animals were there first, right? Mm -hmm. you, you know, leave right. the animals alone. Okay. But yet by them wanting to, either directly ban hunting or disincentivize it by these import trophy import bans, they're wanting to completely destroy these areas where, yes, the animals do come first. <laughs> you know, um, the small fraction that are hunted, the ridiculously small fraction that are hunted for only usually a few months of the year, because most of these hunting blocks are not year-round accessible, nor are the hunting seasons year-round. Um, they fund these huge expanses of land. I mean, we're talking, you know, over in, in many cases, or in some cases, over a thousand square kilometers of wild land. Um, and yet these, these people who say, well, stay out of there, you're let, you know, the animals were there first, they're pushing for legislation and public sentiment that will, the only thing it can result in is that now the humans will come first because those lands, if they are not allowed to, well said. yeah, you know, if they are not allowed to let that small fraction of hunted animals that is sustainable support those lands, then the government will have to give them to the, the, the human, the burgeoning human population that doesn't know how to sustainably utilize what they have now. Mm -hmm. um, the, the tragedy of that scenario is mind blowing that I don't see how anybody who claims that they value conservation and nature couldn't understand that. 
And then, you know, the, like, okay, so people will say, well, let's turn it into a photographic area. Sorry, no. You know, I've traveled as a photo tourist in Central America, South America, Africa, um, Portugal, you know, various areas. And I keep doing this. Um, I, I wanted to say, you know, when you asked me about my my personal involvement in all this. Yeah. Um, I was telling my friend Austin the other day that I didn't become a hunter because I was a conservationist. I became a conservationist because I became a hunter mm -hmm. because I didn't become a hunter until I was like in my thirties. Okay. okay. Um, but on that same sort of note, I first began traveling as just someone who was very interested in nature and who wanted to see all these animals. I was very interested in biodiversity, right? So I thought I'll travel to all these areas and I'll, I'll photograph these animals and learn about them and stuff. And because I started doing that, in the process of that, I realized that I, I needed to be a traveler who'd learn more about the conservation. Were these mm -hmm. programs really doing what they mm -hmm. said? Mm -hmm. um, you know, what were the issues in these countries? Um, what was the truth of all this? Um, I think I'm, I'm kind of getting a bit off track here, but but what I well, want to say. Let me ask this: When you went, go ahead, go ahead. Oh, I'll just say one more thing, and then then I'll let you um, have it. But what I wanted to say was, I think one of the biggest things that people could do who truly are concerned about sustainability and nature conservation is if you do travel, no matter what you travel for, if you're a hunter, photographer, just curious, you know, holiday goer, let's say, um, if you really are concerned about conservation, do your due diligence, you know, make sure that the area that you're going to is doing what it says. Um, ask questions, you mm -hmm. know, learn about the things. Um, it's amazing to me, like how many photo safari guides, for instance, that I have said to them, so do your guests ever ask you about the poaching problems? Because many of the national parks have horrific poaching problems, you know, on the perimeters and sometimes even within the national park, mm -hmm. many times within the national parks. And the photo safari guides universally tell me, no, very few people ask. And I said, hmm. Do you bother to bring it up with them either? You know, and they're like, well, yeah. we don't really, you know, we're not really going to divulge that information because then it ruins the out of Africa myth, you know, exact the romanticism right, right. again, right? right. But um, so why why do you think the 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 sort of remote block that you visited in Tanzania, in your mind, why couldn't it be used for photographic tourism? Oh yeah, sorry, I was starting to go that way. Um, the photo tourists that I'm familiar with. And myself, but we're not so much myself because I'm I'm more of a you know I do the rugged stuff and yeah, I don't mind the typical the photographer that you yeah. that you interact with. Right, but the typical photo tourist, I mean, they want some infrastructure. You know, they they want decent roads where they can cover the area um, pretty efficiently, fairly quickly. Um, and and they you know the safari cars they use tend to be slightly less rugged than the average hunting vehicle as well, right? Um, they want, um, decent year round access for the most part, because that even also determines the economic model, right? I mean, most photo tourists are paying only a fraction what the hunting tourists would be paying. Um, right. so you have to do them in bigger volume. Okay. And now right. because you've got the bigger volume and the more infrastructure, your impact is much higher as well. 
Some mm-hmm. of these areas probably couldn't handle, you know, the Miombo Forest, like the block I went to, is very much a watershed area that's protected, you know, which is going to, if that remains protected, right, it's going to help everybody downstream of that. Um, that area, if you were to go in and put more permanent, serious infrastructure, you're probably going to destroy all those springs, you know, and all those mm-hmm. different soil types that interact with each other and, and, you know, make these various clines that, you know, this is going to drain better than that and vice versa. Um, and then you go into these areas and the Miyambo forests in general, the visibility is not that great. You know, um, there's a lot of shrubs or um, understory in a lot of the places. Um, the animal... Your, your limits your photography abilities right, right. abilities yeah yeah um you know a lot of the animal low density of animals you said yeah the you know the the um, density of animals in these forest types is not as high as let's say this the savanna ecosystems okay buffalo they're pretty abundant in the miombo but besides buffalo um you're not going to see thousands of wildebeest <laughs> hundreds of thousands of wildebeest, let's say. And they're okay. also wild, right? They're not habituated. Exactly. Well. Yeah, exactly. Because habituation is a huge thing to photo tourists. I mean, you know, I went to the Sierra, because I didn't just go to the hunting blocks. I went to several of the national parks as well to compare and contrast, right? And yeah, I mean, you go to the Serengeti, if you can't take a good picture of a lion, well, then you haven't picked up a camera. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> just kind of the heart of it, right? Because they, they hang out near the vehicles often. Um, and and you, then on top of that, you know, thick bush attracts hefty flies. Um, hefty yeah. flies are, if you're sitting there trying to take, you know, focus and and really be, you know, trying to get a, a picture of a, a, an animal that's difficult to get a picture of in dense vegetation anyway, and you've got tetsy flies all over you, the average photo tourist, that's just not their jam, man. They, yeah, we're out of know? there. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, you either have to have a very expensive bush flight in, which is not a deal breaker for a lot of photo tourists because they do that other places as well. But if you don't do that and you want to drive to these places, it's a two-day drive over rough roads there's nothing really to stop along the way and and take photos of or you know it's it's just two days through civilization right Mm -hmm. um so there's a lot of barriers to to just saying well we're going to turn this over to photo areas you're not you know it's just that's not the reality of it i think that you have just uh you've painted an amazing picture of the reality of africa and you can only do that going back to the original question and the original things that we were talking about is like, how do you communicate? How do we, in the social media world that we live in right now, how do we portray that reality to people that will never get to experience it, right? And that's one of the reasons why Blood Origins does what it does is that it's like, we're trying to convey things that you don't know about, things that you've never experienced people that you've never interacted with right so um, you know it's uh to me it's a and i'm guilty of it too you know i as a biologist i i fell in love with the miombo forests okay but if i weren't a biologist most people aren't going to you know mm -hmm. i mean i went there and i'm like wow you know we were having lunch one day and this itty bitty praying mantis that was so ridiculously well camouflaged 
jumped off the tree. I mean, it was so little, it was the size of my thumbnail. It jumped off the tree next to where our lunch table was set up and landed on my glove. And I was like, wow, you know, I mean, it was so cool, like something from another world, okay? And I thought, here's this little bitty thing in this 3,000 square kilometer wilderness I'm in that chose to land on me, the perfect person who would appreciate this, right? Exactly. <laughs> you know? um, but that's, you know, that I tell people this, okay? And then in the back of my mind, I think, am I painting the wrong picture to folks? Because most folks don't get excited about that stuff, you mm -hmm. know? Um, and, and I hear a lot of podcasts and I see a lot of things written and stuff where, where Africa is so romanticized. And as you and I both said, there are those moments, there are those scenarios, right? Right. But if that's all you think Africa is, you're missing a huge part of the picture. You know, you're you're missing a lot of that struggle for sustainability. Um, you know, I think about this a lot too. How does a conservation ethic develop? I, I hate that word ethic because that you know that can be yeah, Robert Conyers will get on to you. And I've tried, I've talked to Robert Conyers <laughs> about this a lot, and that man understands this far better than anybody exactly. in the world. Exactly. Right? So let's say a conservation mindset. Okay. Um, how do you uh, help people develop that who don't even have a basic education? Because there's also a serious need for education in most of these parts of Africa. Basic education, you know? Um, I, I think, like, how did I develop a conservation ethic? Well, it wasn't entirely education. It, it was things like I just told you about, you know, what here in North Dakota when the drought hits. I have horses, okay? I'm like, whoa, wait a minute. Are they going to have hay for the winter? Because if they don't have hay for the winter, I got to get rid of them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> they either have to go somewhere there's hay or, you know, something. I can't feed them. I have to feed them. And mm -hmm. you and I talked about this the first time I talked to you. But I, I try to make people understand that it's habitat, 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 habitat. You have to right. have the habitat. If, without that, you can't have the animals. Okay. Um, and you and I talked about how. I have horses and I have people that say to me all the time, well, I'd love to have a horse. And I say, well, why don't you? And they say, because I have nowhere to keep it, you know, and that's the same with wildlife. I mean, you have to have a place to keep it, you know, and, and I'm reading a book um, right now about various historical things that happened in Africa. And the author says, and it's very important that, it used to be that there were islands of people in Africa surrounded by wildlife. There are now islands of wildlife surrounded by people. Great mm, analogy. And, and, you know, those people are land hungry. They're in need of resources, but they don't have the skills or the funding to use them sustainably or the regulation, you know, um, like you can't, it, it, I tell, you know, I, I live in agriculture and ranching country here. Um, and North Dakota used to be all prairie. We now have like less than 10% of our original native grasslands. Okay. Mm -hmm. Um, we need agriculture. We need livestock. However, if you want wildlife too, you have to have all those things moderated and able to work synergistically with each other. Right. Exactly. Or you have to sacrifice some things. You have to say, okay, well, geez, if I really want wildlife, 
I'm going to maybe not have to plant that field this year, but leave it as winter cover. Okay. Um, it's important that people understand that about Africa. Um, it, it applies anywhere in the globe, right? You, right? you have to have that habitat and you have to utilize things outside those protected areas sustainably. I'm not, I, I wish I had the magic bullet for how you get people to understand that. You know, I was in a conversation yeah. with a woman just a day or two ago. Um, it was on a, a conservation page and they had a picture of a muntjac, an endangered muntjac species that, it, that was photographed on a camera trap in Cambodia recently. Okay. In a national wow. park, right? Cool. And it was big news. And, um, all the people that were commenting on this page were like, oh, great. Now you've told the people that there's this muntjac out and, you know, they're going to go kill it. The trophy hunters and the poachers are going to go there and kill it. And and I clicked on the link that was the original article. OK, the original article said that this national park, which is a protected area, supposedly, has been subject to over 10 years of illegal logging. OK, mm. well, so my comment was, folks, if you don't have that habitat, you can't have that muntjac. Or anything else, yep. right? Yep, yep. And it was interesting because a lot of people agreed, but then this woman came on and she said, "Well, but without the deer, you don't need the habitat." And I'm like, <laughs> "True, but what a what? What's know? the chicken and egg scenario here? Come on, exactly. let's be honest. Let's exactly. be honest. Exactly. And that's a, it's an easy one because wildlife doesn't make habitat. Habitat makes wildlife. Right, and and you know that the the anti hunters are constantly going on. I mean, I have even had anti-hunters, you know, I wrote articles about these things and I have had anti-hunters say, well, you know, um, protecting habitat is a sorry excuse for legal hunting. Are you kidding me? <laughs> you know, no, it's I mean, the best excuse. Exactly. It's the best statistic that we have that we as hunters protect habitat. And honestly, when it comes down to brass tacks, that is it. Like, Okay, we have you know we have trophy hunters, we have rich white folks that go to Africa, and all they want to do is kill some big animals. Okay, it's funding the habitat to be protected, right? And and there is no better model right now to protect that habitat. The Jeff Bezos's of the world, the model that is that big nonprofits, is actually an unsustainable model because it relies on donations. Right. And, you know, honestly, um, what I tell a lot of people when they say, well, you know, well, we can keep trophy hunting until we have a better model. I often question these people, why is it only a better model just because you don't approve of someone hunting something? I don't agree with that. Right. Um, mm -hmm. If you can, I don't care who the person is. If they can afford to go there and hunt whatever animal is legal to hunt that they wish to hunt, and they can do it sustainably, I don't. I don't think we should eliminate that just because some portion of the world's population is offended. I really don't. Hmm. You know, um, I think that people really need to start thinking about. If you land gets utilized all over the globe, you know, there's this fantasy that we can just set aside land. Um, no, <laughs> because of the burgeoning human populations, you know, like we talk about these encroachment issues. If hunting blocks were to be disincentivized, the same thing would happen to national parks. 
Um, it, and it is happening in some place. You know, the pandemic. What happened in the pandemic when you had fewer people visiting national parks and funding them? You had increased poaching. You had increased encroachment. Um, and sure, really, you sure. know, just, I mean, so many stories about national parks being encroached upon and illegal timbering and all this sort of stuff, right? So you can't mm-hmm. just set aside these lands and go, oh, nobody's going to touch them. No, it doesn't work that way. You know, there mm-hmm. has to be human presence. And that human presence has to be utilizing things sustainably and making that land work to support wildlife. That's just the the harsh reality of it, whether it offends people or not, you know? Well said. Well said. Well, I think you've given our people a lot to chew on. Um, you've got a fantastic point of view and a fantastic perspective. And... Um, I, I certainly think, even though we were we we drifted onto a different topic right away, because it's <laughs> the first time that we got together. Right. Uh, I think it ended up being a, a much more lively, engaged discussion between the two of us. Um, so thank you. We'll yeah, have well, to do it again. Right. Thank you for inviting me. I appreciate it. We'll have to have you on the one of our roundups to oh, attack some of our articles. Yeah. You can give Cody a hard time. <laughs> Sounds good. Thanks, Karen. Yeah, thank you. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. You're listening to the Waypoint Podcast Network, brought to you in part by HuntStand, the number one hunting and land management app. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark podcast. For even more content, be sure to watch the original films from HuntStand Presents on the Waypoint TV channel every Tuesday at 10 p.m. Eastern. Visit waypointtv.com to learn more.